Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Fran Littlewood about her contemporary novel, Amazing Grace Adams. Fran is a former journalist who has an MA in creative writing from Royal Holloway. She lives in North London with her husband and their three daughters. In this episode, we discuss how Fran wanted to counteract lazy stereotypes about middle-aged women and tackle the perimenopause authentically. Her method of keeping chapters interesting by throwing a bomb into the room and how her first two novels lacked that irresistible hook to attract editors. But before we get into that, here's Fran with an excerpt from Amazing Grace Adams. Sitting there with her fold-out table, pens lined up, she's asking herself why on earth she has come. There's the jump of nerves in her stomach and she feels as if she's back in college, 28 years old and it's like she's 18 again. Strung above the stage is a PVC banner, a yellow background dotted with line-drawn illustrations of various global landmarks, the Taj Mahal, the Eiffel Tower, St Basil's Cathedral, and picked out in bold green lettering, the words Polyglot of the Year 2002. A geek convention, Mark calls it. Called it, Grace corrects herself, because he's in the past now. They are no longer together. A genius convention, I think you'll find, she told him, as she stuck the application form to the fridge, raised her middle finger with her back still to him. A few seats along from her, she sees the man in the black sweater with the holes at the wrists, the one she noticed at registration. He's younger than her, she guesses, maybe by a couple of years, but he's the only normal person here. As she's thinking this, He leans towards her like somehow she's leaked her train of thought. Excuse me, hi. Up close he has extraordinary hollow cheeks and an L-shaped jaw. You could measure a 90 degree angle by it. His hair is going in several different directions at once, but his brown eyes are on her. Do you have a pen? he asks. Grace looks down at her stash on the fold-out table and wonders for a moment if he's joking. She has biros in blue, black and red, a set of highlighters and three HB pencils. Suddenly she feels like a ridiculous swat. I do seem to, she says. Take your pick. 
He smiles at her, stretches further across the seats and eyes her table. He's taking his time doing this and again she gets the sense that maybe he's making fun of her. I'll go blue bick, he says eventually. The classic. She takes it from the desk, hands it to him. I approve. He laughs and thanks her. Then he taps the pen twice against the palm of his hand like he's testing it. He has beautiful fingers, she notices, long with square nails cut short. He leans back in his seat and immediately forward again as though something has spiked his back. I'm Ben, by the way. Grace. She feels the heat rise in her cheeks when she says her name. Hi, Fran. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your debut novel, Amazing Grace Adams. Oh, thank you for having me, Chloe. It's lovely to be here. So can you start by telling us what your novel is about? Yeah, yeah. So so it's a book about Grace. Um, she's 45. She's a, a polyglot who speaks five languages and a one-time TV star. Um, and at the point we meet her in the book, she's, she's hit the wall, uh, but she is about to push back quite spectacularly. Uh, so the book opens, it's the hottest day of the year, and she abandons her car in gridlock traffic and she sets out on foot across North London to try and win back her estranged daughter on her 16th birthday so the narrative sort of covers this this one long hot day but it also sort of stretches back um, so that it covers almost two decades as we kind of piece together what's happened to kind of bring grace to this moment that she's in so there's sort of love and loss and marriage family um, the ambush of age is in there and um, and some female rage too so yeah (laughs) she's my fantasy self (laughs) <laughs> yeah she's the she's the person you wish you could be in when you're feeling hot and bothered and angry at the world um I read that one of your starting points was a, a I guess a frustration with how women of a certain age particularly like pre-menopausal women are portrayed and you wanted to write a novel that kind of properly handled that kind of character can you tell us about kind of that inspiration of your or that kind of starting point yeah, 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 yeah. I just, I was so sort of fed up with these, the the lazy representations of, of women, this kind of whole playing into that trope of women over the age of 40 being sort of downtrodden and boring. And I love my, my Jane Campion quote that I love when she sort of talks about this notion that over the age of 40, women become invisible and unfuckable. And so I very much wanted to refute that. And I just didn't, you know, getting to that that kind of age, I, I didn't identify with um with how people thought of, of, of the midlife space it didn't reflect how I felt and it didn't reflect the women around me so yes I wanted to sort of counter that um but also I think something I wanted to do was really to kind of tackle the the, the perimenopause tackle the menopause head-on so in quite a, a visceral way um and I think that that was something that hadn't really been done before in, in the in the very kind of direct way that I, mm. that I approached it as part of the text I often find that kind of women over 30 or even women over 40 are written as if they're what a 70 year old woman would be written like. And there's yeah. that kind of gap um, of, of experience and life where it's like if you're not young or you're not an old woman, you're kind of like you say that in, that invisibility. And it's ridiculous. It's that thing. This is what I just thought the kind of all the sort of these interesting women, funny, ambitious, clever. It's, it just seemed it's so preposterous to think that that kind of that just all all vanishes. It, mm. Yeah. 
what was your kind of biggest frustration and what do you think that fiction was kind of doing had you had you read any books that you just thought oh god this is this is awful I mean we won't name names but any books that kind (laughs) of made you angry or or made you just upset because you just felt like they were getting it so wrong yeah I mean I can't think so much books but I think more that that whole cultural conversation in general as you say just the general perception of of women in this in this kind of space that that was I think more the the frustration because um, certainly, I've got you know so all my favourite authors, you know, amazing Anne Tyler, who writes so midlife women so brilliantly with the kind of those whole question of identity and, and nuance, and um, Curtis Sittenfeld writes them brilliantly. Meg, I mean, obviously, loads and loads of people do. Um, but yes, I think maybe um, yeah, I think it was the the direct approach of I think the the whole putting the whole sort of the visceral. Um, menopausal thing in it just I was uh, talking to on a podcast with Sam Baker last night the incredible Sam Baker who has done so much obviously in that kind of whole menopause movement area and we were saying you know it's astonishing to think that when I first started writing this so it was right at the beginning of the first lockdown so back in March 2020 that nobody was really talking about it you know I think no what people would have struggled to define what perimenopause meant that's kind of the litmus test I I certainly had to kind of google it and 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 sort of tease all that stuff out yeah the the kind of pre-divina era as I like to (laughs) call it and then as I was writing all the these non-fic books were being and obviously there were kind of Mariella and these sort of courageous taboo smashing women who were there but yeah, it has really grown so much, the, the the dialogue, thank goodness, you know, over that period. But it did, it started to feel, as I was writing, quite kind of zeitgeisty and that there was something mm. happening. So that was exciting. Mm. Obviously, when you choose to tell a, a story like this and be so honest and raw and you talk about, you know, a lot of sweat and all the other lovely parts of <laughs> going through the menopause. The difficult itch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> When you when you start to really, I guess, write quite vulnerably and um, openly about those topics, there is a maybe a feeling that you're going to get some sort of pushback or Mm-mm-mm. maybe some negativity. Um, I mean, you've had an amazing response to your novel. You've sold in eleven territories. TV rights have been optioned, but when you're writing about a subject that's misrepresented or not spoken about enough. Were you ever kind of a little bit apprehensive about the response you might get? Yeah, no, it, it's so it's really interesting. I so my agent, I I pitched this to her in a one-line pitch, um, incredible Heli Ogden at, at Janklo. And I think I pitched it as a sort of, you know, perimenopausal woman going on a, a rampage line. She was kind of tell me more. So she <laughs> knew from the start, and I think other people said that was really actually yes, it was kind of a bold move of her to kind of understand this is something that could work so she was championing um from the very beginning but yes absolutely there were points along the way um especially this whole thing to do with you know the unlikable the, the so-called unlikable protagonist which and I feel like in in the same way that women in life are held to a much higher standard than men this sort of impossible standard absolutely the same applies to female protagonists so yeah we had a lot of conversations about um where, where the line was and the fact that you know that it, it was a, it was an issue but I felt um I, I remember when Soren Bliss came out people mm. talking about Martha the character and me thinking what you know so people saying she's unlikable no she's not <laughs> I just it doesn't compute but um 
I just felt really so strongly that I didn't want to misrepresent the women around me that actually I think I, I felt really bullish about it. And, that, and there was the hope that my husband would sort of say, you know, it probably will be quite Marmite. Um, but certainly when I was sort of having some real fun with some of the more dark humor moments in that present day strand where, where Grace rises up, she's she's mad as hell and she's not taking it anymore. I would kind of write those scenes and be sort of going, I think women might be punching the air reading this. So <laughs> yeah, we definitely, it was definitely up for discussion. And it's kind of awful really that it that it has to be, you know, mm. this kind of the unlikability issue in terms of women. Mm. Yeah, I always wish that wasn't a discussion point because sometimes the best protagonists are the unlikable ones. I mean, yes, who wants, Becky Sharp. Who wants Becky people, Sharp. Yeah, who wants people <laughs> that are going to be, um, you know, nice and, and sweet the whole way through the book? Definitely not. Yeah, yeah. But also that notion that it isn't unlikable. It's just the reality, you it's know. It's real, just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you obviously started with this, with a more, maybe more of a kind of thematic starting point. Um, and you had this kind of idea of grace and what she was going to go on this rampage almost. Um, <laughs> how did you begin to kind of flesh Grace out and construct her as a character? And did your plot almost come organically from the work you did as, as building Grace? Mm. Well, you know, funny enough, I, I would say, yes, it was the other way around in that because I had this really strong starting point for Grace in terms of I, I knew this kind of certainly the present day strand, what, what was absolutely going to happen with her. And I knew very much the essence of, of who she was in this sort of she was going to be this midlife hero, heroine, this this warrior. So actually, I think I having that in place, I then kind of I got my key plot points. So I think just I was sort of say little islands to jump to, you know, and I had the the arc of the of the narrative. So I sort of hammered out, I think, in each of the timelines, the key things that I knew were going to happen along the way. And then I think the characters, the fleshing out of the characters came came after that. So I remember, in fact, someone was asking me recently, how did the polyglot thing come about? Mm. Which is, I so enjoyed writing that. I love that whole language aspect. And we were sitting around the kitchen table discussing it. And my daughter, um, and I love this, it reflects very well on me as a parent, was was teaching herself Japanese at the time. So that case, she said, well, why don't we do a, why don't you do a, a lack of something to do with language? And so the polyglot idea came out of that. So sort of by, by committee, I was looking for, I wanted something that was an extraordinary quirk, something that would be memorable, because so I, I wanted her, Grace, to be this sort of every woman, but to have something that sort of set her, set her apart. Mm-hmm. So it was that kind of a brainstorm of, right, what quirk can we have? And, and the polyglot idea came out of that so that's my 18 year old claiming all the credit for that (laughs) I hope she's got a big thanks in the acknowledgement (laughs) so you talk a little bit then about the structure I'd like to touch back on that because so the 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 beginning of the book and then follows the whole the whole way through is set across one day and then the the other strand is well there's sort of two other strands because we go back in time further so that we can see how she formed her relationship with her husband who's now estranged and how they came to have their daughter but then you also go back and touch on the breakdown of her relationship with her daughter so so the structure came to you pretty early on then so you knew you wanted to do this kind of like one day but then Mm. you had to go back what kind of made you decide to split the structure in that way and not just kind of I don't know make go back in time within the the one day 
Yes, yeah. So that's so it is. It's three different narrative strands. So the present day strand and the past strand that starts when Grace is twenty eight, and I say that the first moment that she meets her husband and um, her her to be husband, and then they fall in love, um, or or you know they are very drawn to each other at, at first sight. Um, and then there's another strand that is four months earlier than the present day section, and, and moving forward so that all three timelines converge. I think um, with the past section, I just I wanted to write it in the present moment. I wanted to have that immediacy that I kind of, I didn't want to write loads and loads of flashbacks. Mm. I felt I wanted to write it as I went along, yes, just to get that sort of that more immediate feel. And then with the third strand, I just, you know, it's those things you kind of look back as you kind of construct your narrative about trying to remember about how, how you did it. I think it felt like the only way that I could possibly do it in terms of what I knew had to had to happen in the book in terms of um, the reveals and, and the moments when things happened and also um, the time scale of it in terms of her being estranged from her husband but also estranged from her daughter so yes the third I remember just thinking it just fell into place it felt a really annoying thing to say it just all fell neatly into it <laughs> well it we, the only we way I know it wasn't it. that easy <laughs> but it, sometimes when you look back on it, it, it you think it's there's an alchemy to it that we don't always understand I suppose yeah it had to be that way yeah I couldn't see another way to do mm. it yeah what about the present day strand then? Because obviously you've got to extend a whole day to cover the whole book um, and you have to obviously put things in there to keep the momentum. I mean, mm. the the kind of central challenge, I suppose, is Grace getting across London in the heat, no car, she's got to get a cake. There's there's some great passages about this cake. It's a brilliant <laughs> Love Island It does cake. a lot of metaphorical heavy lifting, that cake. <laughs> <laughs> so was that a challenge then? Because obviously you knew at the end point, I mean, I hope it's not giving too much away to say that the end point is getting to her daughter, but was it difficult to then find things to get her to do in that one day that was going to yeah. help you tell the story of her past as well as what was going on in her present day? Yeah, I mean, short chapters are a, are a gift to everyone, I think, in this respect, to keep it choppy. But actually, no, I knew, I think what I realised was I couldn't have this just as a sort of rage fueled rampage. So I wanted to um, make it kind of nuanced and I wanted there to be as many scenes that were that are compassionate scenes in that present day. So there's, there is sort of a kindness of strangers uh, theme running through that as well to offset the sort of her huge frustration mm. with with the sort of... She, it's it's sort of it is it's almost like the daily life of a, of a woman and and almost looking at those microaggressions um this sort of uh, I touch on this this whole um crisis of violence against women and girls in terms of you know sexual the daily sexual harassment the joys that we all have to put up with and sort of building from there so that was the more sort of um yeah, rage fueled socio-political side of it but then yes I, I wanted to weave in some compassionate moments as well um, to make it a fuller story I actually Harold Fry I looked at very closely on this because obviously that's the same sort of quest novel um, so just to, the kind of light and shade of that and just to get some some dynamics um, but also I always every chapter that I write I kind of have this right throw a bomb in the room for each chapter and I feel as though if I'm sitting about to start writing a chapter and I don't want to write it I feel like if I don't want to write it no one's going to want to read it so I think yes those moments that I wanted to write her challenging the guy up the ladder who, who catcalled her is like yes I want to write this chapter so hopefully that means people will want to read it 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So I wanted to touch on the relationship between mother and daughter because that's so central. One thing I thought you did really well in this novel was the inclusion of social media and how that plays such a, a dangerous and mm. alarming, but also, I guess, necessary part of um, everyday life, and particularly when it comes to having teenagers. I know from friends of mine that have got um, older children and, and teenagers, but, you know, there's there comes a point where you can't not let them have it, but mm. how do you control that? And that's something that... Um, sort of you discuss quite quite a bit in this novel can you talk about why why that was something you wanted to touch on yeah 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 yeah. I you know the more I talk about this the more furious I get actually I, I have to say I think it's such a difficult time to be a parent and I think it's such a difficult time to be a teenager purely because of this kind of saturation of of, of social media um, and as you say, you can't not give it to your kids. You can hold out and hold out. But they, you know, my daughters would say to me, we'd be social outcasts. If mm. I'm not on the, the Insta chat, I miss the invite. Uh, so so there's that. But it's, yeah, it's utterly, utterly toxic, this kind of constant social comparison, which is so bad. I mean, I've got three teenage daughters that's one of the reasons it was so important to me and, and they know you know we talk about representation of women all the time they're kind of great tub thumping feminists but also all the messages coming at them the whole time are you should be looking beautiful you should be looking perfect there's a filter on tiktok and they know they know all of this but still um it gets under your skin you can't and we feel it i feel it as a 50 year old you know how can you expect your kind of 13 year old your 15 year old your 18 year old not to not to feel it and i just yeah it's as you say it's dangerous the whole kind of awful molly russell thing and i think 
you can think as a parent that you know your kids and your kids wouldn't do this stuff but the algorithms are pushing things at your children so you might be looking at a recipe site and before you know it you're you know moved on to dieting sites and then before you know it you're on to in the in the sort of inspiration zone and I know people have kind of done it and shown how quickly you can leap from one to the other and it's completely unregulated and I do I think we'll look back at this time and look at the look back at the lack of legislation governing uh, social media for for kids and and I think we'll be absolutely appalled yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean I think you know there's this epidemic of self-harm it's like it's the new smoking all of this stuff is kind of just there all of all of the time and yeah it's really tough for them it's yeah it always makes me think thank god I'm not a teenager anymore <laughs> yeah no I know well it was bad enough wasn't it but at least yeah. we could get home and escape and I feel mm-hmm. like you know from their friends as well it's this sort of 24 hour surveillance yeah yeah definitely yes. one thing I wanted to talk on about if we can without any spoilers is that um there is a family breakdown in the novel and it is prompted by an event a tragedy but I wondered whether that was something that you'd always had in mind to have as a, a kind of trigger for the family breakup or was there any other things you thought about that could be a catalyst and did you always kind of intend to withhold it from the reader for as long as possible because you get you don't find out what has happened I mean we see pieces of why their family are fractured but we Mm. don't know what the kind of uh the biggest spark was was that something you kind of toyed with as an idea and did you always plan to kind of withhold it right to the end Mm. Yeah, it's funny. I think it's when when you start writing something, I think you're sort of antennae on everywhere for for ideas and for everything that's happening around you. And in fact, the the central thing that yeah, we won't name it, but um, something very similar happened to to a family at school, not a family that I knew, um, but also at the same time, a close friend of mine, a friend of hers, was going through the the same thing, um, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I think it's sometimes those things that you feel as though if yeah the more drama in like you know before I've written things and I'd be sort of saying things are happening in our own life that are far more dramatic than what I'm actually putting on the page I think it's that that tricky balance isn't it of not making something feel sort of shoehorned in or contrived um but but really these are these are things that 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 happen in in life but so yes that was very much something it was something that was happening at the point that I was writing this novel and something that um wouldn't let wouldn't let go actually um yes and in terms of and I also wanted I wanted there to be a situation that was that was complex and that was nuanced that it was something that there was there was blame but there was no blame you know there could be blame but there there wasn't blame um so yeah I, I did have that I had it early on um yeah in terms of not revealing it um until towards the end of the novel yes I always intended that as well I I I think it's really interesting in books when something happens um a long way in that that completely throws a different light on a character and changes everything you you thought you you knew about them or some of the things that you, you thought you knew so yes that that was my intention from from the start to push that to, to the end to the sort of build to that mm. yeah I thought it worked really well because it was surprising but I wasn't I wasn't pulled away from the narrative and thinking it was so unexpected if you see what I mean it worked well yeah. a secret because naturally it'd be something that Grace wouldn't 
be thinking or wanting to think about every day so mm, it works mm. that you you get with you know sometimes you feel like the writer is playing a trick on you but I didn't feel like that with this oh, I'm so pleased I'm like <laughs> yes I really tried to be so careful with that um yes but it's it's tricky yeah. <laughs> I'd love to talk a little bit more about your kind of general writing routine because I know that's something that all writers get asked about and everyone wants to know what what are your secrets and what are your tips and um I wondered whether you can tell us a little bit about kind of how you write are you much of a planner and mm. do you think that your approach to writing now has changed that you have a book published do you think it's going to be different in future <laughs> well well writing this one was it was I was, it was right at the beginning of lockdown and actually it's one of the reasons I think I sort of I did it because I, I had there was an, another book before that we were sending out just as I pitched this idea to Heli who sort of said I think this is the idea um, so we stopped sending the other book out and and she sort of said to me right let's try and write this in four months for Frankfurt and crazily wow. because I think which I didn't do but I <laughs> but I did write it with it with sort of an under nine months and I'm I'm a slow writer so that was you know astonishing for me um, but I think it was that time that everything was sort of turned on its head the rules were being rewritten it was very acute so I think that was a really unique set of circumstances that will never never come again but also in terms of the sort of subject matter of the book it was all of us at home as we all were that kind of the government sanctioned hour hour long walk a day I had yeah three two of them were teenagers at the time my 16 year old sort of up in her room in the, in the top of the house and I was kind of thinking how horrendous imagine that being trapped with your parents at 16 I just you know so so the conditions were ripe for this cathartic right <laughs> So I think that was kind of very different. And, and actually our neighbours at the time were who had moved out were rebuilding their house from the, from the ground up with pneumatic drilling, et cetera. So the whole thing was yeah, V intense. So in, for that, I was writing it all over the house. I was sometimes in the kitchen, sometimes in the bedroom, sometimes in my daughter's room. I was sitting on the doorstep at one point trying to, to escape. But my ideal routine <laughs> would be sort of starting in the morning. I like working in the kitchen. I feel you can kind of, pretend you're not really doing it there's a lot of kidding yourself I think tricking yourself into starting work and I do my top tip is I start with a chamomile tea because I find it I believe in the power of it it really calms me down it sort of yeah calms the dread of the, of the blank <laughs> page <laughs> but yeah so so yeah so I work I find it hard to work for more than an hour and a half creative writing at a time I feel kind of really mind boggled by that and I often feel when you move away from the computer often the ideas start coming and then I'm running back down to sort of jot something down. It's really interesting. I mean, my husband works from home as well. We don't have, no one has a proper job in this house. So we quite often go for a, a walk around the woods with it, with coffee um, and then come back. But our kids are home from school at ridiculous. Like they're back by three o'clock. So it's sort of beyond that. It's what you can, what you can squeeze in. <laughs> it's really nice for me to hear that you say that you're a slow writer. Cause I really relate to that. And also I'm, I'm the same. Like I, I couldn't do like, four hours of writing a day I just I just mm. don't think I've got the brain power for that I think there's a point where the creative well dries up and yeah, yeah. an hour and a half is a, is a nice amount of time and um, there might be more opportunities to kind of revisit it later in the day but I think to sit that hour upon hour is just very I find that I'm not writing anything decent after so no, I want to touch on you've mentioned this other book that you had was out with editors mm. um so has that book now gone to the novel graveyard or is it something that you might revisit? 
was it was it the case of it wasn't getting kind of um yeses from editors what was it that made that book kind of disappear and amazing grace adams decide to kind of that was the one you thought okay this this one is the one Mm. Well, there were two before that, in fact. So I did a, I did a part-time creative writing MA at Royal Holloway, which was incredible, amazing, loved it. And then I got my agent um, on the back of that. They send out an anthology of, I think it's about a thousand words of everyone's writing. So yes, my I, I got, uh, Heli signed me on the back of that and I'd written four chapters of, of a book that I was working on then. And that, so that went out. Um, and looking back I think I, I wrote it too fast I shouldn't and it was a, a nearly but not quite and then I started on the second one which was a bit like sort of pulling teeth it's that right you know I mean I could have rewritten the first but it was kind of soldier on go forward <clears throat> and that was yeah that was a, a struggle to write and took longer and, and that was the one that was going out at, at, at the time um, yes so whether or not it would have sold in the end on the sort of next hit down I don't know but the difference I think was those but Heli would call them quieter books mm-hmm. um, but they didn't have um, the, the there's the dark humor um, in in grace and they didn't have any humor at all so I kind of feel was that was that the switch was that the thing and also obviously grace has this kind of it's it's very hooky it had this this, this big hook um and probably more, as it turns out, zeitgeisty. So I'd wonder if it just all the elements came together mm. for, for this one to work. But, yeah, sometimes it is is that again, it's that unexplainable magic that happens where you get the right idea at the right time. And I appreciate that is an incredibly frustrating thing for people to hear who are, you know, slaving away at their the manuscript that they've been working on for four years. But um sometimes it can just be the right time and the right place and the right theme that they're exploring. It sounds like for you this hook really helped you make mm. the decision of this is the book that's going to do something. And obviously Heli felt the same as you. And that's why you kind of abandoned plans to go out with the other books. Yeah. And maybe it's a sort of finding your voice thing as well. And I th- I would say less deflating is the fact that I certainly put in my 10,000 hours in the run up to that. And of course, you're kind of you're improving the whole time and you're learning, I think, as much learning things about the market as well. I feel like Heli taught me so much about um, plot and I would say that the fact that there actually had to be one no stuff has to happen <laughs> you know so you're learning the whole time and, and improving yeah <laughs> so tell us a little bit about timings then I just I always find this kind of fascinating because I know people worry about how long things take and publishing is notoriously slow when did you sign with Heli and then when so your initial kind of getting your agent part when did that happen and then when did the your when did this book go out to editors yeah, oh gosh, I'm awful. I never know what year it is. So I will, this will be a sort of failure of an answer. But I, <laughs> so I spent, I, in fact, I, I, I did my MA over three years in the end. Um, we kept having various medical crises at home. So that sort of dragged out. Um, and then I signed with Heli uh, at the end of the course. And yeah, how long the other books? A couple of years, you know, in all. Um, and then this one, this one just felt very fast from the moment of it being. So I think so I started writing it in March 2020. And then I think it sold a year ish le- later. Um, but then it's been a long uh, mm-hmm. process waiting for, for this slot. So I think it was another year and a half before the slot came around. Does that, does that add up? Yeah. Five years of a... <laughs> 18 months to two years from book deal to publication tends to be pretty standard oh, is it? Uh, yeah. which I imagine for people who maybe 
uh, interested in kind of getting her book out there now or, or, or maybe looking into self-publishing seems incredibly slow and it it does feel slow but obviously there's lots of things going on in the background that we're not aware of as writers there's all the kind of sales marketing all the rest of things mm-hmm. going on that take all that time yes I, to be I felt it where it has gone so fast actually that 18 months I feel like well, I don't know where that's gone <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you about, which is another thing I know makes writers nervous or people who are um, hoping to get their book published makes them nervous to think about is working with an editor and kind of Mm. polishing your work. So what was your experience like? Did you share kind of similar vision of how you saw the book going? Mm. Do you remember anything that you kind of felt was challenging or difficult or you disagreed on? Was there any point where you thought, actually I don't agree with their idea and I want to do it my way or were you kind of on the same page Mm. do you know I'm so delighted to be able to genuinely say (laughs) we were so much on the same page so I was working and this is fascinating to me I didn't know this is what happened so because that I have um my UK editor Jess Leak and also US editor Amy Einhorn and we worked on the edits together it would have been the same for you I'm sure yeah and so Jess would do her UK edits then it would go to the manuscript would go to Amy in the US and she'd do her edits and then it would come back to me to do so yeah quite a fascinating process but you are there's always that thing when the edits come in and you kind of go oh no I don't want to have no I don't have to do it I don't have to unpick it or or change this um and then very quickly I'd always think no actually that you know there's a fair point but absolutely you can push back and that I don't there were no big things but I certainly remember sometimes it's just a matter of explaining I the reason I did it was because of this or this is a reference to to this so yeah it was a real dialogue but I I my personal experience has been that I they absolutely enhanced the booking terms and I have to Heli as well Heli who was a really hands-on agent so before it even went out the kind of fleshing out of backstory and um just as much as I was saying the chapters that didn't make it as, as those that that did um, but yeah, so it absolutely improved it, particularly in that kind of fleshing mm. out the backstory and the and the, and the characterization. Mm. My favorite thing is always when, but certainly for me, when my editor would highlight something and say, "What did you mean by this?" and I think, "I have no idea." Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I wrote it busted two years ago. I have no idea what I meant. Yeah, oh, you're right. It doesn't seem to make sense. <laughs> 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 so it's very early days for you as a debut your book's not been out for very long at all but I was wondering if there was any advice you had about about publishing about your journey that maybe for the next cohort let's think of 2024 already and the people about to become debut novelists um what would your advice be maybe something that you found challenging about the whole process or something that you've learned or something that you've even discovered about yourself what what do you think would be your advice mm, I think I think we were talking about this before the, the thing that the thing that I think I found the most challenging is talking about the book so in interviews and things like this is just that I think as a as a writer you spend so much time in your own head in solitude polishing those sentences um, and you have time you give yourself time and then you're kind of when you're being interviewed you're having to sort of try and be articulate (laughs) 
off the hoof and that's one of the things I so I think there's and I'm I'm sure it's kind of probably a characteristic of, of a lot of writers that you're a perfectionist you kind of have to be the sort of no words wasted thing so I think the thing that I and I am not doing this at all but need to kind of get to do is just parking the perfectionism at the door of the, the point that you're you're trying to talk about your work because you're never going to be able to distill those 300 pages into perfect little sound bites and and we were saying earlier where we're not being able to do it justice you know feeling god I don't know if I'm doing it justice and you know I've missed out this bit or I you know I haven't properly explained that so I think yes I think park that perfectionism and just um, know that you won't be able to sort of speak about it as eloquently as you can write on the page spending hours doing it <laughs> well I think anyone who's listened to this episode will agree that you've done a very good job in in today's episode <laughs> so you've got nothing to worry you. about <laughs> <laughs> So finally, can you tell us what's next for you? Are you working on anything new at the moment? Yeah, yeah. So I've started the difficult second novel. So I'm writing about sisters. I, I'm one of three sisters and I've got three daughters. One of my sisters has three da- we've daughters. We've got an awful lot of sisters and, and woman energy in our, in our family. So I'm writing about sibling rivalry and specifically I'm writing about this, this taboo of a, of a father who inadvertently reveals that he has a, a favourite child. So again, I think it's something that could open a real can of worms and is maybe a little bit under-investigated. I'm going to try and approach it. They're, they're sort of midlife, the, the sisters. So I'm going to try and approach it with that same sort of mix of emotion and dark humour that, that Grace has, mm-hmm. hopefully. that sounds really good I'm really excited to read it Fran thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today oh thank you Chloe it's been fun (laughs) that was Fran Littlewood talking about her contemporary novel Amazing Grace Adams which is out now and available to buy and if you'd like to support this podcast debut authors and independent bookshops you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.